Thank you, Rachel and Jacob. Uh, please do open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And as you do that, um, I want you to imagine that you are a GP. For some of you, that requires quite a lot of imagination, like me. For some of you, less so. Um, but imagine you're a GP and you have one patient who keeps coming to see you every few days. The first time they come to see you, they say something like this. Doctor, I have such a sore throat. Can you do anything to help me? Maybe some antibiotics. And so you, as the GP, do your job. You uh, do a thorough physical examination. And once you've checked them over, uh, you tell them, I'm sorry, I, I can't do more for you, but it seems like a viral sore throat. Take some ibuprofen and it will get better in a few days. It's, it's viral, not bacterial. And so I'm afraid antibiotics won't help. The patient looks a bit disappointed, um, but walks out of the surgery. Two days later, the same patient reappears, but this time they have a little bit more to say. And so in a very kind of hoarse whisper, um, they seem to really be hamming it up. Doctor, I have such a sore throat, I can hardly swallow. It's keeping me off my sleep. It's affecting my ability to do my job. Would you mind just taking another look and checking to see if some antibiotics wouldn't help? And so you, as a GP, you do your job. You do a thorough physical examination. And once you've checked them, you tell them, I'm sorry I can't do more for you, but it seems like this is a viral sore throat. Take some ibuprofen and it will get better in a few days. The patient looks visibly irritated. Are you sure I can't just have some antibiotics? Is there a chance they might help? I'm sorry, antibiotics won't help, um, but it will get better in a few days. Take some ibuprofen. Two days later, the same patient comes in again for a third visit. And before they've even sat down in your room, they're shouting at you, demanding antibiotics. The patient cannot believe that in the 21st century, in the victorious era of modern medicine, all they're getting is ibuprofen. They want the secret pills, which they think you're hiding. Ibuprofen. Surely this isn't what the victorious era of modern medicine looks like. Ephesians is a lot like ibuprofen for the church. When we're tempted to look, or when we look at the church, we're tempted to think, is this it? Is this really what the victorious reign of Jesus on earth looks like? On the ground in Ephesus, it seems like the church were having a really hard time reconciling two things. On one hand, the victorious reign of the risen, ascended Lord Jesus, that seems to be true on one hand, but on the other hand, there's the imprisonment of the Apostle Paul. If Jesus is the victorious, all-conquering king who has ascended into heaven and who sits at the right hand of God, why is his apostle in prison? And why does the church look so ordinary? I have a really wise and, uh, and godly boss in the job that I do now. I work with uh, Christian students. Um, and when we meet for him to supervise me, more often than not, he says the same thing every time I have a problem in ministry. And it's both deeply encouraging and wildly infuriating. His most common counsel to me is this. Two words Pete so often says to me, sounds normal. Sounds normal. And I think really this is what I should have expected. Aren't things meant to be better, bigger, more brilliant? No? Okay. 
well, at least that means I'm not doing anything wrong. And so if we, if we look at Ephesians as a whole, the first three chapters have a lot of very grand stuff in them, don't they? It's very high and lofty theology. But then the second half of the book is very ordinary. This grand, magnificent theology translates into practice as some of these groundbreaking ideas. Don't steal. Be kind. Husband loves your wives. Is this it? Aren't there some secret pills that make church more dynamic, exciting, cutting edge? No, says Paul. What is the one big thing that Paul has already shown us? What does he say proves the magnificent power of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus? What does that look like on the ground? That Jews and Gentiles can have tea together. Yes, really, that's your mystery. Those are your secret pills. That is the kind of thing that the Lord is interested in doing. And so as Paul starts this much more practical section of the letter, he, he starts by addressing the subject of unity. And what he says is that the glorious church of Christ maintains what we have. First point of three, the glorious church of Christ maintains what we have. See that in verse 3. Follow along with me. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what we're supposed to do. And so just as we get into this second half of the letter, um, it, it's worth setting a little bit of context in terms of what it means to do good works as a Christian. Chapters 4 to 6 have an awful lot to say about good works as a Christian. There's lots of imperatives. There's lots of do this and don't do this. And it'd be easy to kind of divorce them from chapters one to three. It would be easy to turn them into a moral code that you must follow in order to um, earn the Lord's favor, earn the approval of your church leaders or whatever. So let's remind ourselves of chapter two, verses eight to 10. Flick back to, to chapter two at verse eight. Wonderful verses, chapter two, verses eight to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may, may boast. You're saved only as a result of God giving you the gift of faith. A gift is not earned, it's not as a result of works, so you can't blow your own trumpet, because it's a gift that you've been given. Verse 10 then, what does it mean to do good works? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. We're saved by grace, not by works, but for good works. Not by works, but for works. He has created us. We are his handiwork, and he has made us, but he has also made good works for us to walk in. We're designed to live in a certain way that's best for us and those around about us. And those good works aren't arbitrary. They're good works which reflect the personality of the designer. I've recently found myself enjoying TV that I didn't think I would ever enjoy quite so much. Interior design masters. Brilliant TV. And every week the designers um, come up with uh, a new design in a, in, in a particular space. And what they're doing every week is trying to show the judges something of their personality in the designs that they produce. And the same is true of the Lord. As we see his design for our lives, we see his character, his flair, his good way of doing things, we see what he's like, as well as how we ought to live to reflect that. 
And so when this command to eagerly maintain unity appears, it's not a stick to be beaten with. It's a a reality to be expressed and a reality that reflects what the Lord is like. And that's the case with with all of chapters four to six. It's about how who we are, chapters one to three, can become our lived experience in the church. Take a look again at verse three. Notice that it doesn't say achieve unity. It says maintain unity. The unity that we have with one another has already been achieved by what Christ has done. That's what chapter two was all about. Chapter two, verse 14 For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. You are united, united to Christ and united to one another. So live as though that were true. The big challenge on the ground in Ephesus is that there are Jews and Gentiles, such diversity that it seems impossible that they could exist in the same space. We don't have so many Jewish people in Dundee, but the diversity in our church is amazing, isn't it? We are such a varied group of people. There is nowhere else in the world where where you will find such a disparate group who join together and genuinely seek to know and love one another. That in and of itself is a great testimony to the kind of God we serve. He is interested in bringing people together from all kinds of backgrounds, different social strata, different ages, different nationalities, different personality types. He is interested in bringing about a oneness in that diversity. He has made a oneness from that diversity. And so we're to live as though that were true. How do we do that? Verse 2. All humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. Paul seems to expect that our diversity coming together might cause some relational challenges. Why do they need to be told to be humble? Because they're perhaps tempted not to be. To bear with one another in love? Because they're perhaps tempted not to bear with one another in love. I wonder what might be on the horizon for us as Grace Church Dundee that might challenge our unity with one another. I wonder whether the most obvious thing is our returning to church in person. Might that test us and our readiness to be humble, gentle, patient, and bear with one another? Some of us have have hardly left our homes for the last 14 months. Some of us are very nervous. Some of us are worried, though, that others have given up on getting back to church in person. What will it look like for all of us to have humility and gentleness in this area? If you're nervous about coming back, will you have humility about what is the best thing to do and when? If you think people should be coming back more quickly, will you bear with one another in love? The most common reason that people leave churches is because Ephesians 4, 2 to 3 hasn't been put into practice. There will be relational complexity when people who are as diverse as we are are put together in the same space. But remember first how the Lord Jesus has dealt with you. There are two commands in the whole of chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians, and one of them comes in chapter 2, verse 12. Look at chapter 2, verse 12 with me. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. Remember that that is true of you and remember that that is true of our whole church family. So bear with one another as Christ has borne with you. Verses four to six of chapter four really just emphasize this, this same point. We all have the same God, Spirit, Lord, and Father. You and I are, are not the same people, but we have the same God. We also have exactly the same church body, hope in heaven, faith in Christ, and baptism. None of us are inferior in any of these ways because there is only one of each to be had. And so we bear with one another because we have been born with. The Lord Jesus is the perfect picture of patience, is he not? His willingness to create and maintain unity with us sinners is deep and profound and long-suffering. So if you find it hard to be patient with one another, maybe particularly as we move back towards in-person church, receive that patience, that forbearance from him. See how patient he has been with you. And so let that humble you and allow you to be gentle and bear with one another in love. This is what the glorious church of Christ looks like. There are no secret pills, but when it's lived out, there is great beauty for those with eyes of faith. So the glorious church of Christ might look like ibuprofen. It might not look victorious, all-conquering, powerful force that you wish it did, but when it maintains the unity that has already been won for it, it really is glorious. So secondly then, the glorious church of Christ wins by descending. Look at verse 8. Um, Paul quotes here from Psalm 68. Um, so keep a finger in Ephesians 4 and turn with me to Psalm 68. We won't read it all, um, but just cast your eyes over it and see the tone. This is a psalm about a victory procession to the temple. And all the imagery is of a battle that has been won, warfare that has been brought to an end, and there has been a great victory on the part of the Lord. Verse 7, the conquering God has smashed his enemies, and now he leads his rescued people. Jump on to verse 17, at the head of his mighty army, the conqueror has entered his temple's sanctuary. The picture is of the Lord leading his people back to their homeland into the heart of the temple. Verse 18, he has ascended to his holy mountain with a procession of conquered enemies following behind. Verse 20, he has rolled out salvation. Verses 21 and 22, he has delivered judgment. And there's a huge victory celebration centered on God's temple sanctuary, verses 24 to 26. This is what victorious kings of the ancient world did when they won. They fight, they win, they come home dragging their enemies behind them. They enter their temple, they have a great party, and the spoils of war are distributed to the people. And in this psalm, the, the impact of that victory is huge. This is no small win. 
Look at verse 29. Tributes are brought from the kings of the world. Verse 32. Praise to God from the kingdoms of the earth. Verse 35. God enthroned in his sanctuary, distributing power and strength to his people. It's an amazing psalm. Turn back to Ephesians 4. Paul quotes from from verse 18 of Psalm 68, and there are kind of two parts um, that he deals with in turn in this quotation. There's the ascent, and there's the gifts, the ascent and the gifts. And so Paul deals with each one in turn. So, So first then, the ascent. If Jesus is this mighty, victorious ruler who has smashed his enemies, who has won this great battle, who has ascended into heaven, then why does the church look so weak and why is the Apostle Paul in prison? The answer? Verses 9 and 10. Read verses 9 and 10 with me. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. We looked a few weeks ago at the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, and this is how the Jews understood ascension. It was the kind of thing that happened after a great military battle. But Jesus' ascension only happened because he first descended. He first descended from heaven to earth to be born as a helpless infant. And the chief end of his ministry was to descend even further to the point of death on a cross. That's what his ministry looked like. It was one of descent. First he descended and then he ascended. And so the same thing is true of all those who follow after him. We win by descending. And isn't this exactly the same kind of thing that Jesus said? How did Jesus describe the Christian life? Well, Matthew 16, 24 and 25, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does the good life look like? What does life following Jesus look like? What does victorious Christian living look like? What should the glorious church look like? It looks like daily martyrdom, daily descent. The good life looks like lives poured out for the sake of Jesus putting our old selves to death day after day after day. And so collectively, that's what the church should look like too, descending out of our comfort zones to serve one another in love. Why is that what the life of the church should look like? Because that's what the ministry of Jesus to us looked like. So that's the ascent. That's how Paul explains the ascent of Psalm 68. He ascended on high only after having descended. But what then about the rest of the quotation? He led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Who are the captives and what are the gifts? The conquering Lord Jesus has gone out, conquered enemies, brought those enemies back and is now distributing those gifts as the spoils of war. Who are they? Well, they seem to be one and the same thing, the captives and the gifts. Those who are taken captive are the ones who are given as gifts. The conquered ones, now in service of the great king, the apostles, the prophets, and so on. Look closely at verse 8. Verse 8 says, he gave gifts to men. 
Verse 11 starts the same way. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. These are the gifts, the spoils of war that are distributed to the church. Humanly speaking, Paul's imprisonment flows from the way that he conducts his ministry. He upsets people everywhere by treating them exactly the same without regard for their social strata, their Jewish heritage and so on. And that really riles people up the wrong way if you treat everyone the same. And so Paul's suffering are as a result of his Gentile ministry and the way in which he does that. But his imprisonment and hardships are also consistent with him having been humbled by a king that he was once hostile to. If you look back at verse 1, he doesn't call himself the prisoner of Rome, although he is. He doesn't call himself the one imprisoned through the activity of those Ephesian Jews, although he is, but rather the prisoner of Christ, taken captive by the Lord who conquered him for the sake of these Gentiles. For the apostle, his service of the Lord led to desertion, isolation, humiliation, and death, all on the road to victory, just as it did for the Lord who conquered him. And so the same is going to be true, not just for apostles and prophets, but also for evangelists, pastors, and teachers. That group of people, they kind of all fit together because they're people who conduct the ministry of the word. They're the people who bring God's word to us. Starting with the apostles and now with your local pastors, teachers, evangelists. But it leaves us with with questions because why doesn't God show his power? Why does it look like this? Why does it look so weak? Well, in, in this letter, where is the power of the Lord? In chapter three, it's in the existence of ordinary churches and in the imprisonment of the apostle. Those are the very things in this age of the enduring power of God. Those things demonstrate the supremacy of the conquering king. There are no secret pills. And so the the glorious church of Christ maintains the unity that it already has, and it wins by descending. These are the signs that the victorious Lord Jesus is at work in our midst. Thirdly, then, the glorious church of Christ grows together. Step back from the passage for a second. Um, Imagine someone comes to you and they have just become a Christian. During lockdown, they've been watching some things online and wonderfully, they've become a Christian and they want to know how to grow as a Christian. What is at the top of your list for what they should do next? I think in in our circles, the, the top answer would probably be if it was in a Family Fortunes style game show, the top answer, our survey said, individual Bible study and prayer. Would you agree? Quiet times, personal devotions at the very top of the list, reading your Bible and praying, ideally in the morning, start your day that way, take some time with just you and the Lord, read some Bible, pray. Have you been encouraged to do that before? It's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea to read the Bible and to pray on your own. But if that's the central way that you expect to grow as a Christian, you're going to have a really hard time. And if you've tried to do that on your own, you will have had a really hard time. I've been there. Because we're not supposed to try and grow on our own primarily. 
for most of church history, Christians haven't had their own Bibles. So how could that have fitted with the majority of the church's history? We do have our own Bibles wonderfully. And so, yes, absolutely, have a go. But if you find it hard to get to grips with scripture, scripture on your own, join the club. Because if these last few verses from 11 to 16 are true, then we should expect the growth of Christians not to be something we do on our own, but something we do together. Let's start in verses 11 and 12 then. Let me read those again for us. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. In other words, Christ has given the church people to bring God's word to them. First, the apostles told and taught the message that Jesus had given to them directly to proclaim. And that same apostolic gospel has been passed on to others who now bring it to us, that same gospel message. And these people are gifts from Christ himself. But what are these gifts given for? Why has Christ given us these people? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Who are the saints? You are the saints. Every Christian The saints are every Christian in the church. And so it's the job of every Christian believer to do the work of ministry. Which I think in our church tradition is quite a surprise, isn't it? We're used to the idea of, um, sorry, we're, we're used to an idea of church that looks more like a bus when really we should have a church that's more like an orchestra. In a bus, there's one driver one driver and everyone else is a passenger. That's, that's kind of how I assumed church functioned for a very long time. There's a professional who stands at the front. He does the ministry and we sit in the pews or plastic chairs or whatever. But the picture here is much more like an orchestra. Yes, the, the church does have leaders who bring the word of God, but they're more like conductors, conductors who help each member of the orchestra play their part. A conductor cannot play every part himself. It would be foolish to try and do so. But if the conductor is the only one who's doing his job, there will be a lot of baton waving, but not very much music. The music is made by the musicians. You are the musicians, and your church family needs you to play. So if you're willing to pick up your cello or your trombone or whatever it is, what's the tune you're supposed to be playing? What is it your ministry is supposed to achieve? The word ministry can mean lots of things in different contexts, but what does it say here? Verses 13 and 14. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What is your ministry supposed to achieve? Unity and maturity. Unity and maturity. It's your job to be involved in maintaining the unity of the church and growing the church to maturity. That's the tune we've all to play as ordinary church members. And just before we think about how we do that, isn't that just the kind of thing that Jesus would do? If this were a worldly strategy, if this were a corporate enterprise, 
how would it work? Well, we would have the elite doing all the significant work. We would have those who are most high and mighty doing everything significant. But here, the, the bulk of ministry, the bulk of church life is not done by the paid professionals. It's done by every individual member. And isn't that a beautiful picture? Every church member has a role to play that is meaningful, really meaningful, significant. In a kind of traditional nativity play, there are often, we run out of roles. There's Mary and Jesus and Joseph, and then were you the kid who ended up as the donkey or a star or a, there are no surplus roles in the church. Everyone has a meaningful role to play. This has all kinds of practical applications in terms of what it looks like for us as a church, but here are just two. Number one, sermons are essential but insufficient. Essential but insufficient. We, we need our pastor teachers to be feeding us from God's word every Sunday, equipping us. But the job of Dom or whoever on a Sunday morning is so that you can minister to each other through the rest of the Sabbath and through the rest of the week. If listening to the sermon is where the ministry of the word stops, then we're never going to grow as Christians. Number one, sermons are essential but insufficient. Number two, each of us must be involved in church beyond tuning into a Sunday service. Each of us must be involved in church beyond tuning into a Sunday service. During COVID, church services have become more accessible than ever, which is brilliant. But it has also been more tempting than ever before just to tune into the service and to stop there. It's very easy to become a spectator of a church service, but it's become much more difficult actually to get really involved in the life of the church. And so if you just tune in online or you dart off as soon as the service is done, you're, you're really missing out because you don't get any of the, the little conversations with people after the service. You don't afford other people the opportunity to minister to you and to serve you. And you don't take up the call to do the same for others. Each of us must be involved in church beyond tuning in to a Sunday service. It might look like at the moment, participating in some of the, the Zoom breakout rooms on Sunday, as much as Zoom calls are difficult, or it might look like socially distanced conversations in a car park outside showcase, or it might look like being involved in a connect group or a DNA group. We need to be involved beyond the Sunday service. So if you're willing to take up your flute or your French horn, what is it you're supposed to do? How do you actually do this? Well, verses 15 and 16, let me read those. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Speak the truth in love. That's what it looks like to do ministry in the church. It's both truth and it's love. The two cannot, should not be divorced from one another. Tim Keller puts it like this. Truth without love is imperious self-righteousness. Love without truth 
is cowardly indulgence. We need both truth and love. We need to take what we hear on a Sunday and we need to help one another bring it to bear on our everyday lives. We need help to do that. Again, so much could be said here, but two applications of this. If you just look at that description of what it means to be joined and held together by every joint, each part working properly to make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love, I think the first obvious application is that we need to be really involved in one another's lives. We need to be really involved in one another's lives. How can we have something that looks like that so so tied up together unless we're really involved in one another's lives? The church is not supposed to be a set of casual relationships. That's why everyone who's a member has taken vows deeply committing to one another. We need to be really involved in one another's lives, number one. Number two, this can't be effectively done online. It can't. And we all know that to be true, don't we? It's what we've been missing so desperately for the last 14 months. Are you thriving spiritually at the moment? I'd be astounded if you were. Because if this is what the church is supposed to be, and it hasn't happened for so long, if this is how spiritual growth is supposed to take place, and we've been unable to do it, then it seems unlikely that you'll be at the height of your spiritual well-being. If this passage is to be believed, then the church, uh, then church that looks like this is necessary for everyone if they are to thrive spiritually. And that's probably why for most of us, our spiritual health feels like it is at a very low ebb. Online connect groups, Zoom chats with people after the Sunday service, these have been great blessings and they continue to be. But this kind of intimacy, this kind of closeness that's here in Ephesians 4, to be this involved in one another's lives, it just isn't possible over an internet connection. We can't yet do everything in person. I'm not trying to make people feel uncomfortable. But this has to be the direction of travel. This has to be where we're headed. Because if the church has been designed this way by the Lord, we need to make in-church person the direction of travel. That has to be where we're going. It has to be where we're headed. In-person services, in-person connect groups, in-person DNA groups, informal coffees, meals, walks. That has to be where we're headed. So speaking the truth in love to form this kind of knitted together entity is what the church is supposed to do in order to grow. We need to be really involved in one another's lives and we need to have a direction of travel that is towards in-person activities. And so this is what the glorious church of Christ looks like. It seems a bit ridiculous, really. A plan for world domination involves ordinary Christians getting together to talk about what they heard in a sermon, asking each other questions about their spiritual well-being. That's the grand plan. No secret pills. Grace Church Dundee is a glorious church of Christ. We're a work in progress, but we are a glorious church of Christ. And so we maintain the unity that we already have. We win by descending and we grow together. Don't you want to be part of this? 
If this is the thing, the center of the activity of Jesus in this world, don't you want to lean into that? Isn't it worthwhile, full of meaning and purpose? It's decidedly ordinary, but it really is glorious to be part of your local church. Let me pray. Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for the church, for our church family. Thank you for the so many ways in which those around about us have reflected the character of your son to us. Thank you for the ways in which these relationships have helped us grow over many weeks and months and years and decades. Thank you for the great gift of the church. Thank you for the great gift of your son and the way in which his ministry was one of such humility, patience, forbearance. Thank you for the way in which he bears with us. Please help us to see how Jesus views us, how he has borne with us, and so to bear with one another when it is difficult. Father, help us not to be surprised by the, the ordinariness, the descending, the giving of ourselves that is involved in local church ministry. Help us to see that, yes, this is normal, but it is glorious. And so help us to get involved. Help us to give of ourselves to one another. Not out of mere obligation, but because we have received so much and because we trust you, because we trust we know that you know what is best for us. You've designed us, you've made us, and so going with the grain of how we have been made means giving of ourselves to one another. Please help us to do that. We really find it hard. And so please help us to grow together. Help us to, to be formed into something that looks like these verses. Help us to be so involved in one another's lives that we really can minister meaningfully to each other. Help us to take the sermons, the Bible teaching that we hear, and to help one another put them into practice, to knead them into one another's hearts. Father, we, we need your help, what you're doing, but we trust you. We love you. We thank you for all that you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close our service.